Lord, we are uh, individuals that uh, are ones who are made in dust and are sinful. And as we look at this church this evening, uh, we may see some of the characteristics in this church that remind us of ourselves, uh, that we at times uh, think we are more important than we truly are, and that uh, somehow we are in a glorified position in comparison to others. And uh, may we have a mind that is like Christ's and uh, seeks the unity of his body and not uh, be seeking to magnify ourselves. And so may we learn from this book here this evening, uh, 1 Corinthians, and uh, that uh, we would see a reflection of ourselves and uh, hopefully see some reflections of the good things that are found here uh, in this. We love you, Lord, and thank you for Christ who changes everything, the gospel that uh, transforms lives, and we thank you in your Son's name. Amen. So did we get sheets on the way in? Did everyone get 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians sheets? Everyone's got it. <clears throat> going through and you, you kind of look at the paperwork for this and it's a full four pages and you kind of go okay why is it a little bit longer than the gospels uh it's because it takes a little bit more explanation i think as you read through books like matthew mark luke john acts it's self-explanatory there's a storyline most people can follow these things but as you get into these epistles these letters you have to have a logical you know, in a sense, a logical thinking process to figure out where and why this stuff is being written. So you kind of need a little bit more explanation of why these things are here. And so as we've gotten to the book of Romans, lengthy notes, 1 Corinthians, a little bit lengthier notes as far as the book is concerned, do realize this, that like the uh, people who are arranging the Old Testament and then they arrange the New Testament, uh, they oftentimes put the larger books first and then the smaller ones, the ones with less material later, sort of like the major prophets and then the minor prophets. Uh, it's not that they're minor because they have something less important to say, it's just that they are smaller. And so it is as you read through your epistles, you have the larger ones first and then you kind of go down in size uh, for the Apostle Paul as far as what he wrote until you get to Philemon. You know, it's one chapter and uh, that. So uh, we do have some sizable material as we, we have to cover here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Once you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we will go through and, and perhaps uh, as we go through just uh, read certain verses to emphasize certain points uh, that may be made in the notes here this evening. But you may be asking yourself, well, who wrote this? And uh, you have the author is Paul, and you go, how do you know that? 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul to be called, an, or called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, and of the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. The question comes as you read this, and if you've ever read through this, what do you, what do you have as a theme for 1 Corinthians? Because the subjects covered in this book are diverse, seemingly. Issues that you would not normally connect together are suddenly together in a book, and you say, well, how did we get to this point? 
uh, as you have in your notes, uh, this letter was by far one of the most business-like letters the Apostle Paul wrote. That's not to say he doesn't doctrine and doesn't have passion with it. It's he's dealing with stuff. He's trying to correct stuff. It's hard to come up with a, a theme statement. Basically, what it comes down to is Paul has a desire for unity in the church. Uh, there's disunity in this church, and you're going to see some of the issues that are dividing this church body. Uh, some have perhaps gone with that statement in verse 2 um, that these individuals were called to be saints. And perhaps that's the theme as you go through this, is that he is saying you should act like holy ones. You should act like ones who've been set apart from sin and set apart to God. But really, a lot of the issues he's dealing with is that there isn't unity in this church. And so it's kind of businesslike because he's, he's going through and taking care of certain things that he sees needs to be taken care of in the church. And there is an order to this as we go through, okay? Time written, uh, this is a book that was written on the third missionary journey. Paul came to Corinth during the second missionary journey, spent about, we know, about 18 months there, but probably longer looking at some of the time period there in Acts chapter 18. Uh, He... suffers at the hands of the Jews, brought to court, says he's there 18 months. Then there's other people that get saved after that 18 months. So it may have been as much as two years longer than that that the Apostle Paul was with his church at Corinth. When he got done, he sailed across the Aegean Sea, 200 miles to Ephesus. He drops off Aquila and Priscilla there, and he goes to Jerusalem. While Aquila and Priscilla are in the church at Ephesus, or excuse me, the church at Ephesus, in Ephesus, they're at the synagogue. Individual comes through by the name of Apollos. Paulus is preaching the message of John the Baptist. He's preaching the message of the Old Testament that people need to prepare to meet their king. And so he's preaching this, and Aquila and Priscilla pull him aside and begin to teach to him uh, about Jesus, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that John had. And Apollos is a quick learner, and very quickly he's on his way out of Ephesus to Corinth, where he preaches. Paul comes back to Ephesus and begins to establish a church there. We know that he is there three years. Acts says that he's there for three years. He's ministering in this town, seeing great doors open and great opposition. The opposition being the temple of Diana that's there, that's losing all sorts of income and the like. These things that are going on, you find this taking place. Uh, And Paul is dealing with his church at Ephesus. Lots of things going on. But as he's there, you have individuals that are coming to the Apostle Paul and telling him certain things. We know this letter is probably written towards the end of his time there in Ephesus, which would put this about A.D. 55, A.D. 56. So it's about that time, third missionary journey, he writes to the church of Corinth from Ephesus. Now, you say, what's the impetus for the letter? Why did Paul write this letter? Why did he feel like there was a need to do this? Well, being 200 miles uh, across uh, water is not too far back in ancient times to be from some, uh, someplace else. And so as the Apostle Paul is ministering there in the city of Ephesus, he comes in contact with many different visitors. Uh, Ephesus being a major port, Corinth being a major port. So lots of travel in between there. 
It would be like in our culture, you have places that are major airports, you know, Chicago, Dallas, Atlanta, L.A., and that's kind of what you would have. The travel is pretty common and uh, fairly easy to get, and so people would travel back and forth on business or other things to go to Corinth, to go to Ephesus, and come back and forth. In the process of this, the Apostle Paul comes across people who know the church at Corinth. One of them that comes back to Ephesus is Apollos. Paul writes about this, that he, in 1 Corinthians, his letter, that Apollos is back with him. And Apollos is here. He comes back after several years of ministry. Uh, you read in Acts chapter 16, verse 17, that there's three different individuals, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and I can't remember the third guy. Uh, but they're coming with gifts from the church at Corinth. And so they're coming, providing some financial aid to the Apostle Paul as he ministers in Ephesus, and they're doing this. And then in, in chapter 1, in verse 11, you have, uh, you can read this, that there's this individuals that are the house of Chloe, okay? Different people from this lady that is a, a rich individual who has servants, people working for her, that in their business dealings and travel, they come to the Apostle Paul, and they're telling him what's going on in Corinth. And so they are coming with different questions, or excuse me, financial aid, talking about what's going on in the church. You have certain reports being brought. And in some of this, there are people who are bringing questions that are asking questions and going, okay, these are some questions we have here in the church at Corinth. Could you answer this? And what you find is that as the Apostle Paul is going through this, Paul is realizing, I need to do something. The church at Corinth is having some serious problems. Some have suggested that Paul may have come and visited the church once in between here, uh, possibly, but uh, we have no record of that in uh, the scripture that he did. But he realizes he has work in Ephesus. The door is open there, much opposition. He's preaching the gospel. And he realizes there's much damage and destruction in this Corinthian church. And so this caused Paul to write a letter with the hope of preserving the unity of this church. Um, I, I will say this now. Most people think that this church was probably the most gifted of all the churches. You hear the discussion of spiritual gifts, what they have, what's going on in their church. Uh, as far as gifted individuals, they seem to be one of the, the strongest churches in uh, New Testament times when it comes to this, but that spiritual gifting doesn't guarantee the unity. Okay, the gifts they received. Uh, in fact, what it's going to do is lead to some of the divisiveness that's going on. If you arrange the book, it's pretty simple. When you read through the book, you find that the first uh, six chapters are basically Paul giving answer to some of the reports that he's received from the church. Things going on that people have told him are going on in the church, and he answers these. Now, it's not that people are coming and going, uh, Paul, could you answer how to deal with this in the church? No, he's answering what he's hearing going on in this church, and he says, okay, here's what needs to happen. Here's the wrong thinking that you have. Here's the wrong attitude you have. Uh, and he answers that. The second section, chapter 7 through 16, Paul answers questions that have been brought to him. Okay, people actually asking questions. 
And I was thinking about this last night. I had already filled out this, uh, the form for today. It's really brilliant on Paul's part to arrange the book this way. Instead of answering the questions first and then talking about things that he's heard in the church going on that he thinks needs to be dealt with. He up front deals with what he sees as problems he's heard about, and you can guess that the people who received this uh, letter are thinking, where's the answer to the questions? We sent him some questions. What are the answers to this? But Paul, knowing the personality of people, they're looking for this, they're going to read through the first section of this and be faced with things that they might ignore if their questions had gotten answered. And so it's really... uh, interesting that Paul does it this way, but he, knowing human nature and being moved by the Holy Spirit, arranges this letter in this fashion. And so the first section, we're just going to go through it and simply kind of uh, give you the notes here and explain some of the details that are here. The first four chapters, as you look at it, are dealing with uh, one of the things that is going on in the church, and it is this divisions and strife that are taking place. Um, people have taken up parties, or uh, the term sometimes translated uh, by some uh, versions, it's the, you've got factions that are rising. That you have different groups that are trying to prove that they're better than other people and that they're more spiritual than others, allowing them to lord their spirituality over others. And Initially, this is shown in the fact that some people are lording an attitude over the giving of the gospel. They're thinking that the gospel that's being preached needs to be fancied up. And you find this that uh, Paul, verse 17... He says, I'm I'm thankful I only baptized a few people. In verse 17, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God unto, or excuse me, the power of God. But then you think about this, What people are suggesting is this. Paul, don't talk about a cross where the individual that's there, that's the central portion of the story, is one who gets put on a cross. Try try and make this fancier sounding or more noble, uh, something that the Greeks would enjoy hearing that are here. Because a crucified Christ is to, as he's going to state here, uh, to the Jews is a stumbling block. Christ crucified to the Gentiles is just simply foolishness. Why would you follow an individual who died seemingly, well, at a loss? And so what people are thinking is this, we have to make the message of the gospel so it's attractive to people who are rich, noble, wealthy, status, uh, people of status in society. And the Apostle Paul just has to simply remember, uh, remind them of this, verse 26, for ye see your calling... This is calling the salvation, brethren, that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence." 
And then you see this statement, verse 30, but of him ye are, are ye in Christ Jesus, whom, or excuse me, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. If you don't preach Christ, you're missing out on all the things that you need. And understand this as you look around a congregation, especially congregations across the country and everywhere, you're not going to find a whole lot of rich people, noble people, well-known people, people of status. It's not to say that they don't get saved. But you look at a lot of average or ignored people. And we don't like to think of ourselves that way. But we are. And God delights in using people like us who are taking Christ and lifting him up and to see that God's able to do something because Christ is magnified, not us. I mean, this is the danger of people going and say, hey, let's have somebody famous come in and give the gospel to people as if that's going to impress people to be saved. That's not to say that you can't have people have impact that have testimonies like this where they've come to know Jesus Christ, but some people think, well, if we just have somebody who's well-known come in and give the gospel, then people will get saved, and you're going, you're missing out on the fact that Jesus Christ and him glorified is what transforms people. Chapter 2 deals with this idea that, well, you don't change the message, and you go, why? Because people who are natural aren't going to care for the message regardless. In fact, they're really not going to understand it until the Spirit does a work in individuals' lives and their hearts and their mind. Uh, You find this uh, in... Verse number 10, but God hath revealed unto them, or revealed unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given unto us of God. said, how did you come to understand the gospel? It's because the Spirit was at work. The Spirit did a work. The natural man doesn't understand the things of God, doesn't understand the things of Christ. It's not important to them. But when the Spirit of God enters into an individual and is working to convince them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, as John talks about, this is where things start to click and begin to turn on for an individual, and a person understands these things when God's at work. Now, you get through all of that, and the Apostle Paul is just simply trying to magnify the fact you can't fancy up this message. It's the preaching across that does the work. It's the Spirit that has the connect point where people understand this and accept this, and the transformation takes place. So then you have a group of people, and you still have this in the notes there. It's the second paragraph. Okay, so, all right, you know what? I get teaching, I forgot the notes are there and I don't have them in the back screen, so some of you are wanting the blanks filled. You know, it's not complete unless the blanks are there and, you know, whatever, so. All right, so you've got all that there. First division was over how to preach the gospel. Some felt the message needed to change to be more palatable to the world. Paul's answer in chapters 1-3 to was that the gospel is something that is going on, uh, only going to be understood by people who had the Spirit working in them. The Spirit had to do work. God did. 
Okay, the second thing is this. The other division was over who people preferred as a preacher. You know, okay, well, all right, well, you know, I, I, I'm going to be more spiritual because I've chosen a preacher that's better than, well, that one over there. And, and you have people in the congregation that are arguing this. Okay, you have that some are arguing that they are of uh, verse number four of chapter three. For while one saith, I am of Paul, another of I am Paulus, are ye not carnal? Okay, there are people that are saying, well, we're followers of Apollos, we're followers of Paul. Uh, and as you think through this, you go back to chapter one and verse 12. Okay, I just want you to go back because he kind of addressed this earlier on. Verse 12, now this I say unto you, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I mean, there, there's people going, oh, well, I like Apollos. He, you know, he's more clear in his preaching. You know, Paul's kind of theological, and he's kind of, you know, he's not very good to look at and whatever, but, you know, we go with Apollos, and other people go, well, we go with Paul. You know, Paul's this deep theologian. And, and, and then some go, oh, well, we're of Cephas. And you go, who's Cephas? Peter. Peter had sometime come through this church at Corinth and preached too and, and uh, that. And then you had the, the super, you know, the, the, the people who pulled out the trump card. Okay, it's not that we like Cephas and we like Paul and we like Apollos. No, we like Christ. You know, we're superior to all of you in this argument. And that's what, that's what was going on here. And so there's this pride. As we, you look through the book of 1 Corinthians, you ought to go through and mark up the number of times where it talks about being puffed up. It's like they've got a balloon for a head. It keeps expanding. They're puffed up in their mind and how great they are and how superior they are to everybody else because of how they're gifted. Well, this is another one. We follow the, the right preacher, and what the Apostle Paul deals with in chapters 3 and 4 is just simply this that God uses all kinds of individuals to do different kinds of work. Paul talks about this, that I came, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. We all had a different purpose. But who gets the glory in the end? It's not the preachers. It's those, uh, it's not the preachers. It's the, the working that God did that he gets the glory for what goes on. Apollos would go, I like Paul. You would say, well, who, who would Paul go for? Paul would go, I like Apollos. I mean, these men weren't competing with one another. They realized they had different purposes and different ministries, so they weren't a part of this. But it's people in the congregation that are saying, well, we're more noble than other people because we've chosen the best leaders. And Paul goes, all of these people who are ministering are doing specific works of God and God's field and God's building, and they're doing these things. So stop getting, well, these divisions, these parties, these factions that are going on in the church. And so one through four is dealing with that, where Paul just goes, these divisions, these parties, these factions that you're gathering uh, are not good. It only leads to strife, enmity, and fighting. You get to chapter five, and Paul just changes gears and says, okay, there's something else going on in your congregation that you're really proud about. And it's this, it's the problem of immorality in the church. Chapter 5, verse 1 starts with this statement. It's reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much as named amongst the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. 
You have somebody who's uh, living in a relationship with his stepmother. And the Apostle Paul goes, it's reported that this is the case, that this is going on in the church, and that you're doing this, and the community at large is looking and going, that's just, you know, they find it abominable. But yet the church is going, well, look, we got this guy in our church. He's a member. And we, we're, we're okay. We can handle him being here in this church. And, and look, we, we have the ability to handle this. And Paul just goes, mm-mm. Know you not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? You allow this sin to stay here, what it does is it multiplies out, and you allow this to remain in your body as a congregation that this is going to be a problem. And so verse number four, or verse number three, Paul says this, for verily, uh, I verily is absent in the body, but present in the spirit have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye gather together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. What you've done is provided a haven for a person to think it's okay to sin. And what they need to realize is that this sin is what causes people to not be a part of the kingdom of heaven. That's what he addresses at the end of the chapter there. He goes, there's people who live like this and they're not a part of the kingdom of heaven. Why do you have somebody who says, I'm a person who's in Christ and I can live this way? You go, that just ruins the whole idea of why Jesus Christ died. Why did he have to die? He had to die for sin in order to allow people to be well changed, but also to have entry into heaven. And here's this guy who's living like the world and doing whatever he wants to do. And there's this question of, well, why do I need Christ if, you know, I can live like this still? And so it's ruining the testimony of Christ. It's ruining this person and it could ruin other believers. And so for the Apostle Paul, he says, my statement to what the report is, is this, you remove this person out of the church, perhaps for the saving of their soul. It may, they may destroy their flesh, but it might in the end save their soul. So do this. Don't be the protection for this. But there were people in the church that were, were going, hey, you know, we can, we can handle this. Look, we got this person in our church that's like, living like this, and, and we, you know, we are, you know, broad and open in what we're doing here. Now, I will say this, you got a lot of churches right now for the sake of, and we use words like this, equality and inclusion, we're willing to have all sorts of immorality condoned by a church. And you realize the churches are the ones leading out in this inclusion. And that's the sad thing right now. It should be the other way around. The world should be doing this. But the church is the one who's, oh, it's okay. And you're like, no, we, we shouldn't be giving protection for this. And so it, it can destroy a church. You do this type of thing, allow it to remain. Immorality in the church. Lawsuits in the community. Okay, well, you have a bunch of people that are prideful and they want to argue with one another and they want to be uh, proved that they are the best and that they're right. And so what are these people doing? They're arguing in the church over, well, different things and they can't get it settled between them. And so what they're doing is they're going down to the local people's court and they're going there and making a show in front of all the community that they can't agree with one another. 
And you go, what's the problem? Well, it's this. The whole community goes, oh, look, they argue just like we do. They fight and bicker just like we do. They can't settle their problems just like we do. So why do we want to be part of that church? Doesn't seem to solve anything. But these people in this church were so prideful and puffed up, they wanted to win. They wanted to be first. And Paul goes through, and it's a theological argument, but he goes through and says this, do you not realize that those of you that are in this church that are saved are going to judge angels? You're going to have a part in this. Why can't you just settle these disputes amongst yourself and, and as a church settle these disputes? Help these people settle some of these things. I mean, there very well could have been property issues and other things that were involved here, but could not you as a church, because you have the Spirit of God in you and you're discerning and you have the capability of just judging and discerning things, why don't you settle this case in the church? So that people can suddenly realize, oh, you don't need a court to solve problems? Problems can be solved and people can work things out because they have Christ in their life. So Paul says, stop the, stop the disputes going to court. Uh, you're ruining the testimony of Christ. In the, the end here, you have the impurity of the church. He says, well, it sounds like much like the immorality that's in the church, but you have to understand that the, these people start talking about all things are lawful for me and you know these type of things. What, what goes on is that there are some in this church that think it's okay... How to explain this? Um, the worldview of the Greeks is that their body was bad and evil, that the soul and the spirit wasn't. It's going to play a role in the, the argument about the resurrection later on that the Paul, Paul is going to have to answer. But the, the idea of many Greeks is that the body was evil. So there were some that still thought this, that when they got saved, they could still sin and do what they had done in the past life. Corinth was known for its temple prostitution. It was known for all of its temples. And they had a problem with people who were going and visiting these temple precincts and doing all the things they had done in their past. And the Apostle Paul is going, no, no, no. Do you not know that there has been a change in your life? Um, Look at verse number 13. You know, these people are making statement, meats for the belly, belly for the meats, God shall destroy both in them. But then it says, now is the body not for fornication, but for the Lord, and for the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord and will raise us up by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that that which is joined in harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh, but he that is joined in the Lord is one spirit. Verse 18, flee fornication. Verse 19, what? Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. What he's basically saying is this. Your body has been bought, and it can be transformed in its use because you have Jesus Christ who's paid the price. You can be different. Stop living like the world. And he gives a command. Flee fornication. Run. Don't get near it. 
For some of you, you just need to go a different direction than when you're, where you used to walk in the streets. Go someplace else. But the Apostle Paul is making the statement, flee fornication, believers are to live differently. So all of that is dealing with reports the Apostle Paul had. And it wasn't that the people in Corinth are sending this and going, can you give us answers to this? Paul is hearing this and going, you know, this has got to be dealt with. You have the switch over, and uh, you have this uh, on your second page there, answers to questions. And, and you have, one of the first questions is this, and it, it seems to arise out of the fact that it's this whole passage, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, nevertheless to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. I'm not going to get all the details here, but there are some in this church that are very much thinking this is a possibility, that maybe since we're saved and immorality is wrong and all that's involved with that, maybe we should just not be married. Okay, that's one of the assumptions. There seems to be in the thinking of some, well, maybe we shouldn't be married because we can serve God better. So we just, you know, end the marriage. And what you have in chapter 7 is a very lengthy discussion on singleness and marriage, divorce and remarriage, and a whole bunch of different issues when it comes to that and answers to questions on this. Now, you can get all caught up in that, but you may very well miss the middle section that is the core of what the Apostle Paul wants you to understand when it comes to the issues of singleness, marriage, all of these things. Uh, Should I change this or not? Verse number... Verse number 20 just simply says this, let every man abide, or we put it this way, remain in the same calling wherein he was called. If you're single, stay single. If you're married, stay married. Okay, this is just you know, all the different things here. And verse number 21, art thou, to being call, or art thou called being a servant, care not for it, but if thou mayest be free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price, be ye not servants of men. Then verse 24, brethren, let every man wherein he is called, therein remain with God. What he is saying in this passage is don't be quick to change your status. Okay, you know, you have that. And I I remember a few years ago, there was a guy on Facebook that finally realized that there was a, you know, place where you could say single and married. And he finally clicked on married. He'd been married for 25 years, but of course it comes up on Facebook and it says married you know, all of a sudden, and he had a whole bunch of friends going, oh, you just got married? I didn't know. You know, and they were mocking him, but, you know, his status had changed. According to Facebook, he was now married, even though he'd been married for, yeah, 25 years at that point. So it is when you have, uh, just looking at this section, there's a lot of people eager to change their situation right now, and the problem is, is they're not content where they're at right now. They're thinking that if they could just change their status, everything will be greener on the other side of the fence. And what God is simply saying is, learn to be content where you're at. Now, your status may change. 
Okay? You read this, he's, he's talking about people getting married, being single, whatever, and in this, and it changes over, and that type of thing. But he's just simply saying, learn to be content where you're at right now. Don't think that, okay, the, the change in this will make somehow life better. No, be content with where you're at, and then God will bring things along to change the status. Maybe the death of something or someone. You know, these things can change. So it comes down to, as you have the notes here, that some thought it might be needful to leave their spouse, better serve God, keep from sin. Paul answers the question of the believers. Uh, too often believers think that their situation would be better if they changed it. Okay? Well, the only blank there is leave. So <clears throat> we'll go to the next one. Verse 20, 24, we lay the idea to stay in your situation. Paul is not saying that people may not change their status. It should only change if it's in the will of God and God, you know, you're, you're following what God says, not what I want. Okay? So that's what that whole chapter 7 is about, and there's a lot to unpack there, but not tonight. <clears throat> Chapters 8 through 11, Paul is answering a question about meat offered to idols. To us, that's really not an issue in our culture, but here you have a people that is surrounded by a whole bunch of idol temples, and much of the meat that is served has been offered on an idol or offered on a sacrifice somewhere and then sold in a marketplace. And so the question comes up, can I actually eat meat offered to idols? Because there's some people in the church going, no, 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 because we've been saved in Jesus Christ. That, no, you know, that's involved in idol worship. Don't eat that. And there's some people in church that are going, it's meat. Let's eat. I mean, that's their thought. It's just meat. And so you have this whole discussion that goes on. But the way the Apostle Paul starts it off is that he uses uh, the question of whether one can eat meat to offer to idols as a springboard to give principles to decide what to do in matters that are doubtful. And as you read through chapter 8, you ought to sit down and just read through it. He's saying, yes, there is knowledge. Okay? Is meat anything? No. Is an idol anything? No. Stone. Piece of metal. Wood. And you might know that and understand that, but there's others who do not understand that, which then means you balance their knowledge with love for others. I have knowledge, but yet I'm also saying, I'm not, you know, I'm right here. My position's the best one. You know what? All of you people here who don't understand my position, I've got all the knowledge. And but the Apostle Paul says, not everybody understands, so you're going to have to act towards some people who don't have a conscience on some of this or don't understand the issue. Uh, they do have a conscience. You've got to love them. And you're going to have to meet them in a place where you're not going to cause them to stumble over this new faith they have and give it up. And so you get to chapter 9, okay? There's some of the church Corinth that did whatever they wanted without considering the effects on others. Okay, the Bible does make clear that we have rights. You read chapter 9 and the whole thing, you go through Mark, um, when you read through this, Mark the times where it talks about rights, authority, and liberty. Okay? Or power, I remember correctly, uh, in uh, the translation we have. Um, it talks about having rights. Paul goes, do I ever have a right to have a wife? The answer is, yeah, sure. You have a right to have a wife. All the other apostles do. Cephas does, those ones do. Paul goes, I cho I've chosen not to have a wife. 
Why? Well, because I need to minister better. And he starts talking about some other things that he's given up. He says, I haven't taken pay from you as a church. Do I deserve to be paid by you in Corinth? Do I have a right to expect that? And the answer is yes. Labor is worthy of tire. But he goes, I haven't taken from you. You say, why is that? Because you get to chapter, you get to 2 Corinthians we're going to look at next week, and he's going to have all sorts of people that are accusing him of all sorts of things. And one of them is this, is that we made you wealthy. And he's going, I haven't taken a single paycheck from you. I worked the whole time. I'm a tent maker. Did I have a right to expect to pay from you? Yes, but I didn't. Something in his character and something from the Holy Spirit said, uh, you need to work. Don't get caught up in getting pay from them. But whatever the case is, Paul gave up his rights. Uh, and then what you see is that sometimes when people say, well, I've got rights to do certain things, and I'm really not worried about falling into sin uh, by do, using my rights, what the Apostle Paul does is in 1 Corinthians 10 is to talk about people who had all sorts of privileges and rights, and they were careless, and they fell into sin. 1 Corinthians 10, verse... Uh, verse 12. He uses all these illustrations in the Old Testament. Then he says this, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. <laughs> Problem is we aren't. Oftentimes. God is faithful who will suffer you to be tempted or not to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. He's saying, you might think that idolatry is nothing, but don't toy around it. Thinking, I'll, it'll never affect me. won't bother me. I won't be hurt by it. But then Paul goes through and practically answers questions. What happens when you go over to somebody's house who's an unsaved person and they go, oh, hey, let's sit down and eat. Well, they sit down and you eat and there's meat at the table and it's meat. Paul says, eat. But what happens if the other situation happens? You sit down and the person goes, oh, you know, I got a great deal. This is meat that I got from the temple of Aphrodite. <laughs> you know what? This is a really great uh, cut of steak and it's from a great place and, you know, a blessed place. You go, what do you do as a Christian? Sorry, I can't eat that. Because for those people, it's been blessed by that idol and it's part of their worship. They get to partake this. It makes them, in their religion, more spiritual. What does the believer do? Sorry, I can't eat that. You say, why? Uh, you're willing to give up your right to eat meat for the sake of that person's conscience and being a testimony of Jesus Christ. Thus you end in 1 Corinthians 10.31 where Paul says this, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all because you have a right? Do whatever you feel like? No, do all to the glory of God. You want God to be seen, not you not your position, not your right. You want people to see God. So even in mundane decisions about food that you may eat, you better be going, does God have a part in this? What role does he play? How will he be magnified? So Paul takes three chapters to talk about doubtful things. He gives principles, but he doesn't give a yes or no answer, which then means for us, we're going to have to think through how we deal with people that we're not hurting their conscience 
or damaging the testimony of Jesus Christ to certain people, and it may mean giving up certain of our rights. For a short period of time, realize this, you're not going to live here forever and you'll be in the presence of God eventually. You may have to give up something for the whole of your life because you're trying to reach somebody. Would it be more valuable for that person to be in eternity or that you got to exercise your right? Okay, that, that's what Paul's dealing with, but that's what's going on here in this church. They have a question about this and they're arguing over it and Paul's going, no, it's not about your right, it's about whether or not you're giving God the glory. So you have that. And so Paul answers that question. And then he answers some questions about public worship. Okay, Uh, chapter 11, two issues uh, seem to disturb the public worship of the church. What's going on in their public worship services? And the first thing seems to be this, is that the women are worshiping in the church service with their heads uncovered. Now, here is, uh, and uh, I'm not going to get into all the details because this is one you can get a very lengthy time into this, but the problem with this, there, there may have been a freedom because now the church is viewing themselves as family, and when you were with family, you could, in the sense, have your head uncovered if you were a woman and that type of thing, and you kind of view the church this way. But the church was also a public gathering, and so you'd have people show up for a public service, and for a woman to have their head uncovered communicated uh, several different things. To the world and might upset the consciences of some people sitting in that congregation if they had their head their head uncovered in a public service like this and what the apostle paul just simply lays out is first of all what's the order of the service as far as men and women and their in what they're doing in the service but also just simply this in the end you come to the conclusion let's not be a distraction you know our newfound liberty be a distraction in our public worship services. Okay, that's what's going on here. That people are coming in that are unsaved and going, you know, they're allowing for this in this church service? You know, what a bunch of, you know, liberals. And that's what the world's thinking. And the people in the church aren't thinking this, but the Apostle Paul is laying down some principles for that time frame going, this is what needs to be going on. Okay, so that, that's issue number one with the public service. Okay, second is this. The Lord's Supper had become a frustration for many. We do our Lord's Supper as part of the end of a service. Okay, we, we do this. We have a whole service. We typically do this. There's some that do it in the middle of a service. Some that do it at the beginning of the service. Okay, some that have a whole service and it's just that. What went on in the early church was this, that they actually had everybody gather, and typically it seems to be that it was probably many times the church services met in the evening. You go, why is that? Because everybody still had to work during the day because they were slaves and the like, and so your churches oftentimes met in the evening times. And you'd come and you'd have a meal before the service, and everybody would get together and they'd get a meal, and everybody brought their food with them. And I'll explain it this way, and you get the picture very quickly. You have a guy who's just gotten away from working for his master, and he has got a nice crust of bread. And so he sits down, he eats this, and just down the table is someone who has slaves. And those slaves have cooked them a nice basket, and they come in and drop this thing on there, you know, 
And they pull it out and there's roast beef and potatoes and carrots and, and vegetables and all sorts of things like that. And, and before the service even begins, there are people going, you know, this is all I got. And there's people down here like... <laughs> And so, so what happens before the service even begins where you're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and celebrate what Jesus Christ did to bring all these people together, there's people going, you know, show-offs. And other people going, huh, 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 look at us. We've got money. And so by the time you got to the Lord's Supper, everyone's missing what the Lord's Supper for. It's a reminder of what Jesus Christ did for His body, the church, And it's a time to consider what your value is, which was nothing. You couldn't do anything to save yourself. It wasn't your social status, who you were, anything. It was because Christ died in your place that his shed blood gave you forgiveness of sins, and people were missing this. And this is why you eventually get to the point of saying, well, why were they drinking unworthily? Well, you had people coming in going, huh, I really am somebody. And they were forgetting the fact, no, this is celebrating that Christ had to die for you and your sins. And, and so you had this, one of the ordinances of the church, the two ordinances, baptism, and uh, then you had uh, the Lord's Supper, these two things that you did as memorials and pictures. The picture was completely lost in the very body of Christ that was there visible. It wasn't unified. It wasn't together. It was broken. And so the Apostle Paul gives instructions on this and saying, here's what you ought to be doing during your Lord's Supper, here's the attitude you ought to have, and that you need to fix the way that you're doing this. I think this was the start of potluck fellowships in church. You go, why is that? A potluck fellowships is, you bring it in, and anybody can eat whatever's brought on the table. I don't know. Uh, I, I'll have to do some theological research on whether that's uh, why we have uh, regularly potluck fellowships. But Paul goes, listen, you've ruined the testimony of Christ. You've hurt other people and they're thinking about Christ. They're missing a thing that gives them an opportunity to consider the greatness of Jesus Christ and to thank him for their sins. So Paul says, fix it. Spiritual gifts, we won't spend much time on this, but uh, chapters 12 through 13 or 14 are talking about spiritual gifts. And there were some people in the church congregation that were saying, my gifting is better than your gifting. And the thing that they're magnifying is that they could speak in a different language that they never learned. And it was a gift from God. And they would look at somebody over here who doesn't have any of these gifts. They're just going out and helping people uh, who are in need. And they're going, ha look at me. I get to get up in the church service and I get to talk and I get to speak that means I'm better than you are. And, and then people are beginning to go, well, I don't have the gift of being able to speak in tongues. I'm really not worth anything in the church. And the Apostle Paul goes, well, let's just give you a primer. And you read through uh, the first uh, seven verses. I'm correct on that. Uh, chapter 12. Yeah, by the time you get uh, to verse 7, he's given his teaching on uh, all the main stuff, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. And you say, what does it mean to profit with all? In our, the, the English language there, what you've been given as a gift of God is for the profit of everybody else, not yourself. 
So your gifting is not for you and your status. It's for everybody else to profit and be helped by it. And you don't get to choose your gift. God distributes it. So whatever God's given you, you use it to the profit of everybody else. And so he, he's basically dealt with it, but he goes through some different issues. Chapter 13, you say, why is the love chapter there? Because the Apostle Paul says, it doesn't matter what gift you have, you all have the ability to love. You go, why is that? And we know from other past scripture, we have the Spirit of God in us that the fruit of it, some say the main fruit and everything else is an offshoot of it, is that you can love, that you can sacrifice for others, that you're selfless, that's what that word love means. He says, you all can do that. And if you do all the work you do to glorify yourself because you're selfish, uh, it's, it's really worthless. It's like a banging gong. Or it's like a triangle concerto. You know, a triangle concerto, a triangle and you're just dinging it. Yeah, there's not much to it. Who cares? After a while, it becomes annoying. And that's what some people's gifts had become. You get to chapter 14, uh, that one, he gives instructions on how to use gifts in an orderly fashion in church, let all things be done decently in order. What was going on in church services, people would come in, and it would be pure chaos, because you got all sorts of people talking everywhere, and, and they're yelling and hollering, and they're doing their thing here, and someone would come into the church service and just be like, this is pure chaos. And it gave a bad representation of God, because God does things decently and in order. You just write from the beginning of our Bible, when you look at the order of creation and everything that goes on with that, you just go, God's orderly God. And what the church services were doing was giving people an impression that this God was just frenetic. And Paul goes, do your service this way, speaking in tongues, prophesying, do it this way, and let all things be done decently in order so that your church service goes well. Okay? Two more and we're done. Okay? Why does Paul have 58 verses on the resurrection? Okay, we go back to Greek worldview. Body, bad. It's always evil. Okay, the spirit and the soul, yeah, that can go to the gods uh, and the thinking of the Greeks. Uh, but your spirit or your body just goes in the ground because it's evil. It's made of material and it's evil. It's touched evil things. So it's evil and this is the whole mindset. So there were some that were like, the resurrection can't happen. In fact, when the Apostle Paul preached in Athens in Acts chapter 17, when he starts talking about Jesus and the resurrection, there are some that, what? They laugh. Because this is the Greek worldview. So there's some assuming that after you've talked about Jesus rose from the dead, that there's still some in the congregation going, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And there's some others in the church that are actually going, oh, you know what? The resurrection for everybody has already happened. We missed it. And so what the Apostle Paul does is he lays out, A, you have to have the resurrection, or there's a whole bunch of things that are vain and empty and useless in our church body. In fact, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're all without hope. But now is Christ risen. Okay, he, he goes into that and explains the importance that, that Jesus had to rise from the dead for all these things to take place and that ultimately this body that was so sinful is one that will eventually be raised anew and incorruptible without all the sin and all the evil that it committed. What God's able to do is take something that the world goes, oh, you can never use that again. It's bad and evil. And what he does is he takes it and changes it and makes it something permanently glorified and giving glory to God. 
And so he spends a lot of time on the resurrection answering these questions of people who have certain worldviews, background, they've gotten saved, and they've still got some thinking that's going on here uh, in their mind. And so uh, they thought that the body was sinful, we raised to go to heaven, and so Paul deals with the importance then of the Christian faith. Last thing is this, chapter 16, there's four verses there that's basically dealing with how to do their collection. And you're going to have much in the Second Corinthians next week talking about the collection. So he gives instructions on how to do this, and there's some little insights that there is a thing called the Lord's Day. Okay. Some people talk about, well, you know what, the Sabbath day is never mentioned in the, the New Testament, so we don't have, you know, the seventh day. And you're going, uh, there, there is a lot of times throughout the New Testament that the church seems to gather on the Lord's Day. And what's the Lord's day? The day that, well, this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. You go, what is that talking about? It's talking about the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Sunday. Um, And so Paul gives that instruction uh, for the church to gather and meet and collect and, and do those type of things. So, yeah lengthy, okay? As I said, the, the, the times will go down, but this is one of those, you know, Romans, 1 Corinthians, they're larger, so there's a lot more material. Um, now think about this congregation. Do you realize in the three years we've gone, I've been here, we've gone through 1 Corinthians and Romans? I hope some of this was familiar to you. If it wasn't, go back and read it again, <clears throat> okay? Um, but uh, we've had the opportunity to go through books like this and get all the doctrine and the deep details that are here Uh, but it is a very important book. Um, Vital for church unity, church order, uh, and uh, keeping the unity. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of 1 Corinthians. It's been one that has been used throughout church history to solve problems, to keep things from uh, festering into major problems and destruction of churches. Uh, We're thankful that uh, Paul was willing to be uncomfortable in writing this uh, with some of the things he had to deal with, but necessary. And uh, we thank you that uh, we can glean from uh, it today and uh, be able to glorify you in your church and uh, be able to keep your testimony uh, unhindered as we keep unified in a church body. So Lord, we love you. Thank you for Christ who's made all these things possible, that we are nothing without him. And in his name we pray, amen.